Amen. And with this confidence, let us bow our heads again in prayer. Oh God, we, we thank you for even the words that we sang, Lord. May they be true in our life, Lord. That we rather have you than anything else. Riches untold and all sort of things help us to treasure you above all things. And we now come in this moment of our service, Lord, when we want to hear from your word. I pray that your spirit will guide my words, Lord, that it will be your words and not my words. And that, Lord, you will help us to wonder and celebrate at the beauty of your salvation. Be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we, you might have heard of the quest for the historical Jesus. This was uh, a quest that had been started by a liberal uh, school, a seminary. Jesus Seminar was called in the 19th century. It was an effort from liberal theologians to explain away the miracles of Jesus. Explain away the supernatural in Scripture. In fact, they had anti-supernatural lens in the way they were reading the Bible. And so they had to describe a form or a kind of Jesus that must have been a normal person. With nothing supernatural or divine about him. He was just a good teacher. And everything, because of uh, you know, scientific discovery, had to be explained with purely human categories. And so what they did, they go to the Bible, and especially in the New Testament here, they take away all the miracles. That those miracles were not real, they did not exist. However, because of this approach, they failed to explain the, the fact that Jesus' life, entire life, can be understood in light of those miracles. There's no way... That even the gospel itself, that even the, the climax of all these miracles, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you take away the supernatural from the Bible, it is impossible to make sense of Jesus. Of the identity of Jesus that we have tried to, uh, to look into the gospel of John. The fact that he is both human, but also that he is God. Jesus is God. And the way that this is clear and evident before our eyes is through those miracles. Those powerful manifestations that prove to the fact that Jesus is God. And that is what we want to see now in our journey through the Gospel of John that we started a few weeks ago. And we have come now to this first miracle. If you were here the previous weeks, you have seen that we have started to look at the the testimony of John the Baptist toward Jesus and the gathering of the first disciples. You remember last week we looked at the first disciples that are called Philip, was called, Andrew was called, Peter was called, Nathaniel were called. So these first disciples are called and now we zoom in, John the apostle zooms in on Jesus and he describes for us the first miracle that inaugurates the ministry of Jesus. You could say that this is the starting point of his ministry. And it opens, this miracle, the first section of the Gospel of John, 
which goes all the way to, as we saw, chapter 13, which is called the, the signs, the miracles that Jesus does. Because these cycles of miracles are very important. And here, in these first uh, four chapters, we have the cycle of miracles which rotates around this region of Cana. Cana, it's actually uh, their not very famous town close to Nazareth. But those eight representative miracles that are listed for us in the coming chapters have a specific goal. They're not meant for you to say, oh wow, look, he can do this or he can do that and gives you some impression. They are intended primarily to lead you to faith, lead you to show and realize the, the fact that Jesus is God and respond to that with faith. And this uh, story of the miracle that we just watched is only recorded here. The other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, do not even mention this episode of the wedding at Cana. And so it is important for us to see that John wants us to see how informally the ministry of Jesus started. Through what? Through a wedding. You're familiar with weddings. Before I came here, me and my wife, we had two weddings. One in Washington, D.C. and one in, in Ohio as we were approaching coming to Tennessee a month ago. However, weddings back then in Israel were a major social event. I mean, it was a big event. Weddings were announced in advance, where an event that involved the entire village will come together, invited, and it needed to be organized by the family. Particularly, the groom has the responsibility to pay the expenses and making sure that the whole wedding goes well. These weddings lasted sometimes days, sometimes entire weeks. So it's not like modern day wedding that you go to a, a rehearsal and then you have a dinner and then that's it. No, this was a big, huge event. And so we frame this text realizing what it was back then. And also we also realize that this theme of the wedding... The wedding supper, this theme of wine and the wedding supper will be a theme that will be a major theme throughout the Gospel of John. In fact, uh, I almost wish that we could have communion, that this will be a communion sermon for us this morning. Why? Because indeed we will see themes in this text that really are intended to, to lead you toward meditating on that ultimate supper that takes place at the end of the gospel of John, right? It's almost as if Jesus here starts with, with a wedding, with a, with a meal, with wine, and he ends his ministry saying what? This is my blood, inaugurating the new covenant. And so his entire ministry is now framed with this, this, with this theme. We see this in Matthew 22 verse 2 also. That the kingdom of heaven may be compared to what? To a king who gave a wedding feast. So there is this theme again of the, the wine which later will have a double meaning. Because in the Lord's Supper it is actually pointing to the sacrifice. The ultimate sacrifice that Jesus will do at the cross. And the theme of the, the wedding again is meant for us to meditate about the celebration for salvation. That when salvation comes through the Messiah, 
we are supposed to celebrate. And today I know we will have a fellowship meal, which again is a small version scale of, a, of what this celebration is intended to be. That there's more joy in heaven for one sinner that turns to God. And so be, Jesus begins his, and ends in his ministry with this image of the wine. And here through a miracle, all the way to the cross, but also all the way to the eternal supper of the Lamb at the wedding feast as we see in Revelation, the book of Revelation, where the church and Christ are now united and celebrate over salvation. See that? So there's multiple meaning in our text. There's even irony we'll, we'll see. There is a reference there in our text of this appointed hour. My hour is not yet come, Jesus says, to, to display my glory. Reveal the glory of the Father to all God's people in Israel. And we have a series of characters in our story. And therefore, uh, these characters are described by John to be the first witness to these miracles. And they are authenticating the miracle. And so we will organize our text around those characters. And we see that Jesus in this story of the wedding of Cana transformed an ordinary marriage with an extraordinary miracle to invite the guests by faith to a far greater marriage, which is eternal in the heavens. Let us look at the uh, first characters in this story of the wedding of Cana, which is uh, Mary. The first character, verses 1 through 5, is Mary, and she has a plea, the mother's plea. It's there, verses 1 through 5. The first things we notice in verses 1 to 3 is that Mary is aware of Jesus' identity, Jesus' true identity, which is at this point not manifested to the people of God. Verse 1 starts by saying that on the third day, on the third day, mark that because such number will be crucial. As we say, we are starting the miracles of Jesus. And what is the last great miracle is the one that takes place in the empty tomb in the third day. And John, as we said in previous weeks, is very precise on the timeline of these initial moments and memories. We saw that in the previous chapter. Verses 35, 43, John is meticulous, is giving us the, the time-bound, again, third day in the sense of a culmination of this entire week where he has, as you saw, John the Baptist given his testimony, Behold the Lamb of God. The first disciples have been gathered, and now there is this culmination of, with a miracle. And as we said, Cana is a town that is not known, not very popular and uh, it's just north of Nazareth on the west, west side of the Sea of Galilee and you know the name Cana again gives us the imagery of this vine in the promised land but again it's not a well-known place and later in chapter 4 we'll see that Jesus will perform reluctantly another miracle here to heal the son of a nobleman Nathaniel you remember Nathaniel last week right Nathaniel had been Raised in this town of Cana. And he had, you remember, under that fig tree, had that experience of being then called to follow Jesus. And now we don't know who is getting married. We don't even know the names of the husband and wife. The first character is actually Mary. And she's not even mentioned by name. Which again shows us the dangers of some of Roman Catholicism, which always emphasize Mary. But here, she's not even mentioned. The mother of Jesus was there. She was invited 
Perhaps she was a relative or a friend. But by virtue of Jesus being her son, he's invited to the wedding feast too. And because he's invited, then he invites also his disciples. And in verse 3, we are told that there's a problem. Here we have the problem of our story. That then raises the need for a solution that Jesus ultimately brings. They have no wine. The, the storage or the dispensary of the wine had run out. There's the entire supply. And that, as we said, is absolutely critical. Remember, Israel, when you have a wedding, it lasts for days and weeks. And if this happens, I mean, and it's all be used, it's a big deal. And we know it in our day that there's a certain etiquette at uh, weddings, right? We must follow certain principles. There are things that are expected of the visitor. It's a very culminating event. And as I said, those weddings that I take part, I took part before in Washington, D.C. and in, before coming here in, uh, in Ohio, the pastor was emphasizing doing the wedding rehearsal. And this was a friend of mine. And he said, please, I want everyone in the bridal party, please don't do anything that is awkward, which will ruin forever the memory of the couple as they're trying to, you know, more immortalize this moment. And uh, in both weddings, there were things that, you know, could be embarrassing if people don't show up at the, at the table and they're invited that they cancel at the last minute. Or, but imagine here if it's, there's the best man at the wedding and he's, he, he, he goes up and takes the mic and says, I'm sorry, but there's no food. All the dispensary of food has gone and... And the next thing you know, everyone looks at each other and start to blame and say, so, you know, this is terrible. It's like, uh, or maybe they leave and imagine the memories of the couple that the, the moment of their wedding has been ruined. So we have a thing like this here. We have a problem. And Mary now comes to her son, Jesus, which means perhaps she had some family obligation toward this couple. And she's trying to ease the embarrassment of the couple. Because if no one is found, this was an insult to the guests and the whole party was ruined. In fact, in the old days, you could also take legal action to uh, make financially liable somebody if they didn't bring what they were, they were not providing for the feast. So the assumption that, however, that we want to zoom in here is that Mary knows who Jesus is and what he is capable of. She knows, and that's why she's going to him. She had already, as you know, witnessed from the other gospel, a miraculous birth in her womb. She has seen Jesus grown up uh, throughout his childhood and his 30 years of which we know nothing. And this, again, she knows already the power and ability of Jesus to perform miracles. And she runs to him to find a solution to a most mundane issue. And so the question for us, friends, is do we have the same attitude? As we encounter troubles in our life, even small matters, do we run to Jesus to find our answers? Even the most mundane, she brings it straight to Jesus. Or do we seek to handle it on our own? I got this. And again, everything is ruined because we don't run to the source as we... No. And so that is where she's important. She doesn't take the spotlight, but she does go to Jesus. And look at the answer of Jesus in verses 4 and 5. He's very reluctant. 
His response is actually very surprising. What does he say in verse 4? He doesn't even call her mother. Second clue here to go against all the way in which the Catholic Church exalts Mary. She, she's called woman. He doesn't even call her mother. And which was very disrespectful in the Jewish society to have no qualifying title. However, again, this word will come back in John 19.26. You know the episode in the cross. And Jesus calls her woman. Behold your son, right? Which again, just like the, the wine starts and ends the ministry of Jesus. Also, this is the beginning to the end of Jesus' ministry. It changes the relationship he has with Mary. He's, he's no longer her son. He's now he, the son of man. This is his task. And he asks these harsh words. Look at the text in verse 4. What does this have to do with me? What have I to do with you? What have you... What have you to do with me? What does your concern has to do with me? Whatever you translate that ancient idiom in Jewish idiom. It's a way in which Jesus is distancing himself from his mother. As if asking, what do you want from me? I mean, why do you involve me in this matter? And why are you saying this to me? It's almost a saying is Jesus is disengaged from his mother. And in, he has no business with this. And the assumption again. Is my hours has not yet come. Which means the appointed moment for me to reveal my glory to Israel is not yet here. That reference to hour will be repeated throughout this gospel. Which again points to the culminating revelation of his identity as the Messiah. Not as simply a son of a carpenter but as the Messiah and the Savior of Israel. And ultimately that hour will go to that specific week. Where Jesus will enter into the passion. We'll see that he has to go through the cross. And then from the cross to the resurrection. Through the, from the death to life. That is the appointed hour. And Jesus is saying to Mary. This is not the moment. This is not yet the moment where I must manifest my glory to Israel. To then go back to the Father. Saying mission accomplished. So that hour friends is the hour when Jesus offers his life as a sacrifice for your and my sins. That hour is the dark hour of Calvary. Where he lays out and then later calls again Mary from the cross and says. Woman behold your son. So he's saying here, this is not, the time for miracles has not yet come. The time to reveal my identity as the Messiah has not yet come. And also, you, you know, we wonder, I mean, was this miracle really necessary? Because you look at other miracles uh, that will follow in following weeks is, there's no one who gets healed here. And this is just wine, the most mundane thing. But why? Why does John wants you to see and record this miracle it wasn't a planned miracle or necessarily wanted by Jesus as a man. It's almost a saying that without knowing Mary, she, she, she gave the whole thing a start. She gave the whole thing a start. Jesus, however, is saying, I, I must keep my true identity secret. And that secrecy, we will see it, it will, uh, will pop up again in, in the future chapters, has a reason. Because there will be people. 
that will come to Jesus because of the supernatural, because of the signs. But they will not be accompanied by the reason why those miracles are given. To lead people to repent and believe. And so verse 5, we see Mary disregards Jesus' refusal. And she looks to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. So despite the fact that Jesus says, uh, this is not my time, she still trusts that he will do it. She has received a completely negative answer from her son that I guess, I guess as a mother has a sixth sense, she knows how to entice her son to action. I mean, there are things only mothers can do. There, there are things that mother know when the kids lie, they can spot a lie, they can spot a kid's illness miles away, they know when a meltdown is coming. I mean, call it sixth sense or whatever it is, but in this moment Mary knows and she still acts pointing people to Jesus and says, do whatever he tells you. His work, not hers. And so, really, even the most unlikely need, such as the lack of wine, has caused Mary to set in motion the first of Jesus' miracle. And so, as the book of Ecclesiastes says to us, there's a time for everything. That the, the timetable of God was not the timetable of us. And that is true in many areas of our life. That not every moment, what we will gather and glean from this attitude of Jesus is, is his hesitancy toward the miracle. Is that not every moment needs to be a spiritual height. Nor are we to transform our Christian witness in some sort of show. And... There are times to speak up. There are times to wait. There are times where it's appropriate. I mean, you look at uh, the life of Jesus up to this point. He was a humble carpenter. Nobody knew about him. He was just there in the small town of Nazareth. 30 years in the oblivion of a carpenter shop. No miracle. And this was the son of God who was hiding his power all along. Living in obscurity. And his reluctance here to perform the miracle... It's a good example for us of what attitude should we have as we live our Christian witness. There's kind of a level of immaturity where there always needs to be that, you know, spiritual hide or social media does it, right? Or even when you contemplate choices in life, time might not be now, but we are still called to discern and act when necessary. And again, notice again how Jesus addressed this, his mother Mary, He's, he, he doesn't address her as full of grace and blessed and to be worshipped and praised and venerated like the Catholic Church does. She's just pointing you to the solution, which is Jesus. In fact, she says, do what he tells you. Which translated means, her role is only to say, call, I call you, your attention to obey whatever God's word says, which ultimately is where Jesus' will is revealed, not herself. She doesn't have the spotlight. However, her, her response is very noteworthy. Because sometimes, just like her, in our life, we don't know how God can meet our need. We don't know the specific solution. But there is a way in which she approaches the Son of God, and it's not her Son anymore, uh, by faith, believing that He will do whatever He deems best to do. If you follow the approach of, do whatever the Bible says, you will never go wrong, friend. 
And if Christ tells you to do something from His Word, then you do it. You, you don't cut down or shortcut. Oh, okay, I'll obey later. I'll, or maybe I claim to obey, but I don't actually obey. Do it. Carry out what He says to the full. I like what Spurgeon has to say here. Spurgeon says it's almost a call for us to serve Jesus Christ up to the brim of that water jars in the church. To love Him up to the brim in your devotions. To obey Him up to the brim in your daily life. Friends, this is the calling that is over us. And let's look at the second character here. The mother's plea, verses 1 to 5. Now we have the manservant's obedience, verses 6 through 8. The, the servants are aware of this unlikely instruction. And they're saying, what do we do now? The house pantry is empty, and what do we have? They're looking around, and what do they see? They see this uh, stone jars, six of them, which is a lot. And their purpose was to... Jewish rites of purification, ceremonial washing according to the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. They were meant to be used for the ritual absolution required for the ceremonial law. And why they were made of stone? Because the stone was considered in the Jewish uh, system as pure material, which was unlikely to be made unclean. And so there, therefore, I think it's significant that here... Uh, this detail is given in verse 6. That, that there is a cer ceremonial tool that we be will become something that Jesus uses. Which, by the way, tends to go against, as pre f future miracles will show, against what the tradition of the Jewish Pharisees had put upon those uh, elements. Jesus is bringing new wine. The new Messiah, the, the age of the Messiah has come out of a ceremonial tool of Judaism, of that outdoor religion that is about to be purified, replaced by the message of a spiritual gospel. So you see here that from the beginning to the end of his ministry, Jesus has this new wine, which points us to the blood that he shed for the sins of his bride, his true bride, the church. And it will lead us to all the way to the consummation of all things. As we celebrate in the eternal supper of the Lamb. And this is just a preview for us. And those water pots, uh, the text continues in verse 6. They were 30 gallons each. Which is roughly, I mean a lot of, a lot of liquid. 115 liters and 720. I mean that's a lot. And what does Jesus command? He commands them in verse 7 to 8 to fill the jars with water. And they're like, that, that, we don't need water. We, we need water. Probably they were hesitant, but they obey to the command. And he tells them to do so up to the brim. They obey even if it did not make sense to their human eyes. Without asking why. Without looking for logic. Without focusing on what mathematically was acceptable to fill them with water made no sense to them but it required faith and obedient faith at that on their part so we don't know the circumstances of what happened next we know however that it was an enchantment that changed this it was the power of the son of god who does his first miracle 
So he tells the servants to go and give it to the head of the, the party. And the servants were shocked because out of this counterintuitive command came out wine. They just took that off. It was water a minute ago and now it's wine. I mean, this is, this is the creator. No one but the creator of heaven and earth can change and alter the law of logic and, and turn it into wine. And so it says in verse, the second part of verse 9, by the way, that they knew. Those who had drawn the water knew. They were the first witnesses to this miracle. But again, this is the most unlikely instruction again. Filling jars with waters causes the servants to set in motion the first miracles of Jesus by their obedience to the unlikely command. And we will see this many times throughout the gospel that Jesus' command does not seem to make sense humanly. We'll see later miracles. Spitting some mud on someone's eyes does not make human sense. Feeding 5,000 people out of few breads and few fishes does not make humanly sense. But we are still called to obey. We saw Abraham this morning. The faith of Abraham and later on, as we will get into later in Genesis, the way that he obeys in sacrificing his own son. That is, that is the dimension of an active faith, which through faith is always obedience. It always leads to obedience and sacrifice, even when it doesn't make sense. It does lead it to trusting actions practically. And as we exercise that faith, we become witness of God's power in the situation. So let us keep those memories in mind. That it may encourage when things like that happen. Because otherwise... With a dead faith that is only looking at the impossibility and you remain paralyzed or you enter into this wedding feast without the garments of true faith, then you presume of coming without that faith. It is impossible to please God. That's what the Bible says. Just as Jesus turned water into wine as a sign of Blessing, remember also that Moses turned water into blood in the Red Sea and in the Nile because of judgment. See, uh, blessings and curses depend on the way we respond to Jesus Christ. And the way we respond, friends, is by faith. The Bible says to, 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 to respond by trusting in Christ and repenting even of our unbelief disregarding your unbelief that keeps you away from Christ and submitting to the one who actually drank the cup of God's wrath on your behalf to the, to, to the point of coming to the cross. And there the wrath of God was poured out on the Son of God so that you by faith in Him would not have to drink that cup. It may be said of all of us, as disciples, to truly believe in, in an active, obedient faith. That's what sets in motion through conversion. That we obey, whether it's convenient or not. 
That we obey whether it makes sense or it doesn't make any sense. Whether it's safe to obey or it's not. Trust and obey. Now let's look at the third character, which is the ironic character. is the moderator. We have the mother's plea, we have the maidservant obedience, and we have the moderator's surprise. The head of the feast, verse 9, the first part. He is unaware, he has no clue of what has happened. Is the master of the banquet, is the steward or a president of the feast, whatever it was, traditional marriages that I observed and I moved throughout the world. I went to Africa. There was uh, always this guy that needed to be kind of the spokesman of the, of the, the feast. And that, that, that was the case in, in Jewish weddings. So he's presiding the banquet, superintended. And in verse 9, he tastes the water that now had become to wine. And he's surprised because he has no clue of what just took place before his eyes. No idea about the source of this wine. And he feels the taste of the cup. And he feels such a need to speak up about it. He asks this music to stop. And he calls the bridegroom attention. The crowd is silent. All the guests. And in verse 10 he says, he gives an announcement. He first salutes to the bridegroom. And, he, and there's a surprise here. He says, everyone, usually, when you go to a, a wedding, gives out the... The good stuff first, and then when you have drunk freely, then you, you give the bad stuff. That's what you would expect, especially for a wedding, as I said, that could last for an entire week. So that people will not be able to even notice that the quality was cheaper. And again, this seems to be so far a very much of an insult, if you say that. That, oh, okay, so you're saying that this is not as good as the previous? However, he's saying the opposite. He's saying, you have kept a good wine until last. But let's make a comment here about wine. Obviously, you know, drinking is not necessarily sinful in Scripture. However, drunkenness, it's a sin. I mean, don't take the word of this guy, who is a moderator at a, at a feast to be a license to what he's describing here. In fact, drunkenness, I want you to remember from Ephesians 5.18, Romans 13.13, 13, 1 Peter 4.3, Galatians 5.21, it's a severe sin that actually hinders people from entering into the kingdom of God. They're being listed together with homosexuality and other things. So, drinking is not necessarily sinful. However, especially in occasion of celebration, and I come from the Mediterranean, that's, that's pretty common but if someone is tempted by the bottle he should definitely abstain and people in the new testament who are close to people who are struggling with this should bear with the weaker conscience and abstain and so but again here the, the feast continue and the text says you have kept the good stuff until the end and he says that after a long pause where everyone thought okay we're we're done He's now saying that we have, the, we have ruined the party. But the contrast and the irony is for you to catch. It says, you have kept the good until now. The best for last. And he's saying we should thank them. And probably there was a round of applause that took place here. And the couple is relieved. But again, he didn't know 
the head of the, the, the feast did not know who did this miracle. Who did it then? It was Jesus. Even the most unlikely speech of the, of the head of the feast causes this moderator of the feast to acknowledge the abnormal situation caused by the miracle. I mean, can you imagine the guests at this point and the bridegroom and the embarrassing and shameful situation that is turned completely upside down into a favorable and honorable situation? Friends, God can intervene indeed to change even the most smallest detail of your life, let alone our spiritual needs. That whatever shame we experience, that Jesus is able to turn it around, particularly as we speak of eternal matters of salvation. That the law comes, the law of God comes, but the grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. That the law points to your sin, your shame, but the grace of Christ tells you no more condemnation. That you now, through His perfect sacrifice, are completely healed. The head of a feast, instead of, he thinks he's the groom. He thinks he's the, the, the actual, remember last week, I mean, only Jesus sees the heart, right? We saw that in Nathaniel and the professional faith right there of Nathaniel. And so we cannot see the heart, and this man shows us that he cannot. The best man at the wedding has no clue that God is at work in the situation right before his eyes. And it better be not of us that God is at work right in front of our eyes. As the, the kingdom of God is passing right in front of you. And we fail to acknowledge it. And we come up with human explanations. May not be. Our text therefore calls us to recognize that Christ is the source of this miracle. That this is the beginning of the manifestation, as we will see, of the glory of God through Jesus Christ. He is the true bridegroom, you could say. He is the responsible for this miracle. And he actually will get the glory through this, this story right here in Gospel of John chapter 2 forever. That he was the better wine kept until last. He calls us to therefore have a higher expectative and perspective than what we, you can explain in human terms. That was the problem of the people in this liberal Jesus seminar. They want to explain the Bible away, the miracles away. And instead, the miracles are the very grounding to, for you to realize that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Savior. But notice also, Jesus does not want the spotlight. I mean, if there was something appropriate to do at this time, Jesus would have said, okay, it was me. Instead, he avoids places of honor and he encourages us to do the same later on in a parable at wedding feasts. Lest someone more distinguished than us replaces you, the opposite is true of Jesus Christ, which means he could have said, it was me. But he doesn't. Although he owns the glory, he doesn't demand the glory. He rightly should get the glo glory for what just took place. And so how less of us that we should put the spotlight on Jesus Christ and not ourselves. That he is the better and true bridegroom. That miraculously brings new wine. And it offers us Every Lord's Supper, every time, the reason why we celebrate the Lord's Supper is to remember what He has done and celebrate. Yes, we are to examine ourselves as we saw previous weeks, but 
It is also a moment of celebration for the salvation that we have received. That has been transforming our hearts, ultimately like that water into wine. It is a miracle. The greatest miracle, friends, is a heart of stone turned into a heart of flesh. And so let us taste the sacrifice of Christ. And let us celebrate. Because that's what we're going to do for eternity. The eternal wedding supper of the Lamb is an eternal celebration of a meal with Jesus. However, here Jesus remains silent. He just watches the scene. He's reluctant to prove His power. He knows that the, His ministry is about to start, but He goes into it with an extreme awareness and humility. He then, the ministry that starts here will culminate, as we know, on Passover week, as we hold the cup. And he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. Each, let each of you drink from it. For this is my blood which seals the covenant between God and His people. And it is poured out to forgive the sins of many. That, friends, is... See how this theme of wine and the wedding encompass the entire ministry of Jesus? That from this first sign to the upper room, John embodies everything under this theme of the wedding feast of the land. Let us now look at, briefly at the end of our text to the fourth character in our story. We saw the mother's plea. We saw the main servant obedience. We saw the, even the surprise of the, of the head of the feast. Now we go to the mentee's faith, the disciples' response to the sign, which is the response that we should have in front of the exposure to the power of God that invades the earth through a miracle. They become aware of one thing, the glory of God. The friends, the reason of a sign or a miracle is to, for the glory of God to be displayed. The conclusion of this brief story of this celebration in the wedding of Canaan is that this was the first of his sign, verse 11. Jesus uh, made this to be, some translation says, the first of his miracles, the sign posts that are supposed to point you or provide you assurance over they're supposed to tell you there's something about the person who has just done this miracle that is to be embraced and lead you to a proper response. Which is not just a flashlight of wow, but it is faith and repentance in the one who has done the miracle. And that's exactly what the disciples are doing. They're looking at the miracle. They know what to place and they believe. Why? Because they see the divine power of turning water into wine in Jesus Christ. They see the public demonstration of this, this must have come from heaven. And the responsible, the person responsible is not the, the groom at the feast, but the ultimate groom, Jesus Christ. And they place their faith on, on Christ and their sign is just the mean by which they then will embrace the truth of the message of Jesus Christ. This is not some mindless miracle workers that wants to lead you to an emotional response to self-glorification or an immature fascination with the supernatural. This, friends, is attesting the truth of God has come down to earth in Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh, we saw in previous weeks. And it leads me, therefore, to, to turn away from my unbelief in faith. And trusting in the person as well as the message of the gospel that he brings to me. 
as described for us in the Bible. Not in our thoughts, not in our perception, not in something devoid of truth, but in the Scripture. So, the text concludes there. This was the moment when, in verse 11, that He manifested His glory, and the disciple believed. This glory is the glory of God. That the power sent from heaven through the miracle, it is intended to reveal to you the glorious nature of the Son of God. That He is indeed who He says He is. To confirm the intervention of God from heaven in earth. And so what we saw in previous weeks, it's now time to discern and and put it into practice that indeed he is the son of God, as we saw. We left last week with saying, Nathaniel, you'll see greater things than these. And here the, the, the ball is set in motions for greater things to, to go. But again, the causal relationship between the miracle and coming faith in Jesus Christ is important to maintain. Because there will be people in the coming weeks who will adhere to, to, to Jesus because of the miracles. But because they want to have their, their stomach filled. Because they are fascinated about Jesus Christ. But it's a superficial faith. Because the miracle is, sent, is supposed to then lead you to true discipleship. As we saw last week. And so at the end of the miracle again Jesus. We have the family picture. The wedding is over. Jesus goes back to his hometown. With other natural siblings and his uh, mother. And stay there, however, with a ministry mindset. Things are starting to get in motion. Because here, the text in verse 12 says, they stay there only a few days. And next week, if, if we take the, the, the chronological understanding of John, then he's going to Jerusalem. And we'll see next week, he will cleanse the temple. But again, before we move there, this is an unlikely event as I described it to you. Even a, 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 a wedding Causes now the, the power of God through a miracle to come down and lead the disciples to what? To believe in Jesus. Friends, this is the privilege of believers. That blessed are your eyes when they see the glory of God what is in front of you. That it is not like the, the, the head of the feast who is completely oblivious about it. That you grasp the glory of God in the, the miraculous way in which the Lord deals even with us. And our lives. And we embrace that by faith. But faith friends is required. It is demanded. It is impossible to please God. Without faith. And the miracle I'm telling you. Without this true faith. Which as I say it is an obedient faith. Then the miracle has no point. Your superficial faith. Is of no use. Who cares in fact. About a little bit of more wine. At the end of a, a pantry after all. No, the point of this is not the wine itself, is to realize the identity of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, which is the foundation to what is actually taking place in the miracle. That Christ is actually doing here, like when He will uh, stop the sea of Galilee from the storm, He is acting like He is God. He is the Creator. He has the power to change the elements of creation. He is the Son of God. That is the focus of the miracle. 
That he must be God and therefore I submit to him. That we as disciples are summoned to watch his glory and to respond by faith. To turn to him in faith. That is the call of the gospel right now for you and me. And we saw in past weeks that this is supposed to produce in you not on a focus on the physical turning of water into wine as, as fabulous as that is. But to, to show you what that symbolizes. To point you to the fact that Jesus is God. That He leads you to trust in the fact that the Son of God has come on earth. And now I have to submit to Him. And also He gives me a clue on what His ministry is going to be all about. It's going to be about shedding the blood of this new wine, this new kingdom, and you access the wedding supper of the Lamb as His guest. And so brace yourself, friends. Brace yourself for more signs to come in this gospel, as we will see in coming weeks. We dive and we will encounter signposts after signpost after signpost that are telling you and pointing you to heaven. And we drank a first taste of this miracle today. And what did we learn? We learned that, yes, we can invite Jesus even in the dilemmas of our life, even if the most mundane, the most embarrassingly and ridiculously practical matters of our life. And we see that Christ supplies abundantly for our need. It's almost that promise of Psalm 145, verse 15 to 16. The eyes of all wait upon thee, and thou openest thine hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. That he's the creator. And friends, the same creator who does that in creation is coming down in Jesus Christ. But this also means that the intervention of Christ through these powerful miracles changes some of the ritualism that was going on in, in Israel with these water jars. This new wine cannot go into old wineskin, that there's a, a rethinking, a needed change of looking at the religious understanding of ourselves, of what is really Christ, Christ makes all things clean. And that's what he's doing here with the, with the water pots. And I know there's, we cannot remain in entrenching traditions, or we, we must realize that Christ is bringing them to an end. He's fulfilling them and they become obsolete. And therefore, any form of self-righteousness in us needs to be abandoned. Any form of holding on to our unbelief, our explanation, or even our sin. If you are to come to this wedding supper, then you are to come by faith and faith alone. So be ready because He is sending the wedding invitations and many are late many are saying i don't have time or some even show up without those wedding garments of the white robes of the righteousness of christ of what he has done for you at the cross not your own self-righteousness and it is only by faith through his sacrifice through his cup of the new covenant that he offers and friends, there is also the celebration aspects again. That there's more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents than for 99 righteous that do not need repentance. That that is the joy of, of the real celebration. That all this acting out of the wedding of Canaan is only temporary. 
But there is something far greater in the, in the, the land of promise above and that we, 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 we rejoice in, in that salvation. And the intimacy that Christ provides replaces even empty ritual. And he makes us pure and fruitful through his blood, not through our own works. Because those things are obsolete in the sense that they no longer bring you life. And again, we should aim at being Christ-like, also balancing truth with grace, love with sound doctrine. And that's what it looks like when you change the waters of Christ-likeness. Actually, the wine of Christ-likeness from the water of not without Christ. The rich and full eternal life from the heart of stone to the heart of flesh. From the law to the gospel. You live by grace and by faith. And that is ultimately what also Israelites would do at this time. They would send this blessing as, you know, as they're sitting down for a meal and they pronounce those words. Blessed art thou, o Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has created the fruit of the vine. And imagine us entering into that glorious feast in heaven. And that will be the true land of Canaan. We will feast in the house of Zion. And let us live with anticipation and joy and celebration. Just like that couple at this wedding. That we can say they live happily hereafter. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word this morning. And this even unlikely mundane story of the wedding of Cana. There we see displayed the glory of Christ. The first time, the first sign, the first miracle. And Lord, we see that we are marveling at the way in which you are the creator. The same creator uh, turned natural things into other things has come down in Jesus Christ. You urge us, Lord, to put our faith and trust in you that we are not simply to marvel at this and be left in emotions, but that true, genuine faith can be created in our hearts, leading us then to obey you, to uh, follow you as we are seeing in our text. And we pray, God, help us even to celebrate today as we have our fellowship meal together, Lord, of our common salvation, of that beautiful feast that awaits us in heaven because of what Christ has done. Not because of our works, not because of our religious rituals, but because of a better wine and a better new feast in heaven in Jesus Christ. And it is his name that we pray. Amen.